So we're going to uh, continue. Um, and the last lesson that we covered was the permissibility for Muslim women to wear jewelry. Um, we discussed Aisha radiallahu She went back to look for uh, the necklace that belonged to her sister, that her sister loaned to her. Uh, she went back to get her necklace, and um, this is where pretty much the start of her ordeal. Okay? Uh, so lesson number 11 was the permissibility of Muslim women wearing jewelry. And this is, of course, provided that the jewelry doesn't draw negative attention to her. And this is provided that the jewelry is not making a display of her beauty unnecessarily outside of her home. All right. <clears throat> so we're going to continue moving on with the story, inshallah. So Aisha radiallahu she said, فَلَمَّا قَضَيْتُ شَأْنِي أَقْبَلْتُ إِلَى رَحْلِي فَإِذَا إِقْدٌ لِي مِنْ جَزْعٍ أَذْفَارٍ قَرٍ قَطَعٍ She said that, and when I finish, you know, relieving myself, when I finish relieving myself, uh, I headed back towards my riding animal. And it was there that I noticed that I reached up to my neck and I realized that my necklace was gone. And as we established before, that necklace was um, a gift or that, that necklace was something that was given to her by her sister or loaned to her by her sister Esma. So it actually wasn't her necklace. All right. And so one of the lessons we talked about was trustworthiness. And that when she realized that the necklace was missing, she turned around and went back to go look for um, the lesson, right? To, uh, she went back to look for the necklace. All right, so Aisha said that when I finished relieving myself, I headed back towards my riding animal. And uh, I felt my neck and I realized that the necklace that belonged to my sister was missing. So she said, so She said, so I went back to look for the necklace and this is what held me up. This is what prevented me. This is what held me up. And so she continued by saying, um, uh, uh, Sorry. She said, that she said that the the animal that I was riding in, the hodaj, the little compartment that I was riding in, was sitting on top of the camel. And the army had begun moving. The army had begun moving along. And they took the camel and the tent that I was riding on, they took that and they kept going. All right? She said, She said, and women during that time, pay attention to her comment. Aisha said, women during that time uh, were khifafen, they were thin. Women during that time, they were very thin. They, they weren't like thick women. These weren't like women who, you know, ate a lot. These were really thin women. All right, she said, um, that they weren't heavy, right? 
اللقمة من من الطعام فلم فلم يستنكل القوم خفة الهودج حين رفعوه. She said women during that time were very thin, were very slim, were very thin. She said and women during that time they used to eat only a little bit. They wouldn't eat a lot. They would only eat a little bit. She said, so therefore, when they lifted the hodaj up, when they lifted the compartment up to put it back on the camel, they didn't even notice that she wasn't there because it was so light. But women during that time were also very thin. Women during that time were also very thin. So Aisha here... Aisha here is once again giving us a glimpse into the social fabric of their society at that time. And the women, they didn't eat a lot during that time because this wasn't the time for full bellies. When you think about someone who eats a lot, someone who has the luxury of eating a lot and stuffing themselves and eating until the, and you know, and you know, you look at American society where the vast majority of the population here in America are obese, are overweight. That's a fact. The vast majority of the American population are obese. America, out of all countries in the world, has the highest rate of obesity the highest rate of obesity you want to know why take a good guess why because we're very comfortable here we have a luxury that other com- other countries don't have we operate and we function on a level of comfort that other countries other nations don't have the luxury to enjoy we throw away food. <laughs> we throw away food. <laughs> so, a full belly or people walking around fat and overweight and obese, right, is indicative of, you know, a, 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 an environment of comfort, right? An environment, right, back in the day, everybody was skinny. In the late 80s, early 90s, everybody was skinny. (laughs) Everybody was skinny. You didn't find, you know, you find young men and women today, you know, 17, 16, 17, 18 high schoolers. You go, go into your high school, your local high school, and look how obese and out of weight, uh, overweight and out of shape these young people are. Look at how out of shape, overweight these young people are you know we used to look forward to going to gym you know playing dodgeball jump rope and all of the other things that we used to do in gym we used to look forward to that you know we used to walk to school <laughs> they, we used to walk to school and I mean you know these kids have a luxury that you know many of us didn't have all right. So being heavy and, and having big stomachs and big bellies, right, would, would have been, you know, indicative of uh, a society of comfort and luxury, which they were not. They didn't have that at that time. Keep in mind, this was the sixth year after Hijrah, right? The sixth year after Hijrah. That means that when they migrated to Medina, up to this point, 
they had been fighting the whole time that they've been in Medina. The first battle that they fought took place in the second year after Hijrah, the Battle of Badr. So that means two years after they migrated to Medina, they were already in their first battle, the, the Battle of Badr. The very next year, the third year after Hijrah, the very next year, they got into their second battle, which was the Battle of Uhud. Another year passed, and then the fifth year, they got into another battle, which was the Battle of Ahzab, the Battle of the Confederates, the Battle of Khandaq. And then, of course, the sixth year, which is the year that we're in right now, and they go to war with Beni Mustalik. So they haven't had a chance to kind of sit down and, and just concentrate on building their society which is why you know some time after this the prophet ﷺ took the believers to go perform umrah right and it was during that time that he signed the peace treaty of what we know today as the peace treaty of hudaybiyah all right hudaybiyah which happened not too long after this the prophet ﷺ took a group of the Muslims, 1,400 of the Sahaba, and went to Mecca to perform Umrah. As the story goes, the Sahaba were stopped by Quraysh. They wouldn't allow them, right? They wouldn't allow them to go into Mecca. And then in that situation, they ended up signing a history of Islam as the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah. In signing that peace treaty of Hudaybiyah, there was there was there was there was going to be no fighting between the Muslims and Quraysh for a period of ten years, which Quraysh did not honor. That nonetheless, for the time that they did honor it, it gave the Prophet ﷺ and the believers an opportunity to, you know, to begin focusing on the infrastructure of the community in Medina. So up until this point, they had been fighting the whole time. They haven't had a chance to sit back and enjoy, you know, the fruits of their labor, the fruits of their society. They, they hadn't had a chance to do that. It was reported on Khalid ibn Walid, one of the great Muslim generals, Khalid ibn Walid, that one time he stood to lead the Salat. And when he was leading the Salat, he was reciting an ayah from this surah, an ayah from that surah, ayah from this surah, ayah from that surah. He wouldn't recite a full surah. So after he finished the Salat, one of the Sahaba asked him, why are you reciting one ayah from every surah rather than just reciting a whole surah? And Khalid ibn Wadi said, because I haven't had a chance to memorize a full surah, I have been fighting since I took my shahada. <laughs> Since I converted to Islam, I've been fighting. I haven't had a chance to sit down and memorize a whole surah. So they were, you know, you know, you, they hadn't had a chance to kind of just enjoy, you know, the migration from Mecca to Medina, but they were fighting every year. Every other year, there's a war, there's a battle. So they, they, this wasn't the time for full stomachs. So Aisha has given us a glimpse into the social fabric. So the second year after Hijrah, they, fought, they, they fought the Battle of Badr. The third year after the Hijrah, they fought the Battle of Uhud. The fifth year after Hijrah, they fought the Battle of Khandaq. And the sixth year, they fought the Battle of Beni Mustalik. So they, it's war. One year after the next is war. When did they have a time to, you know, eat a lot and enjoy the fruits of their labor? All right? So... They were still somewhat in like a survival mode, you know, even though they had migrated from Mecca to Medina, you know, they were still they were still in survival mode. All right. In addition, it wasn't the habit of the Sahaba 
from amongst them those who were trying to get close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala spent you know much of their time to get close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it wasn't it wasn't their it wasn't their habit to stuff themselves and to walk around with fat stomachs and stomachs out to here that wasn't you know that wasn't the habit of the sahaba the Prophet وسلم, he said, "Ma mala ibn Adam wi'a'an sharran min batnihi bihasb ibn Adam laqimat yuqimna sulbahu." The Prophet وسلم, said that the child of Adam, the child of Adam, has not filled a vessel that is more evil than his own stomach. If you think about it, all of the diseases that we suffer from in today's time. All of the diseases that we suffer from, from in this day and time, most of it finds its origin in our stomachs. Most of it, most of the diseases that we suffer from in today's time starts in the stomach. As a matter of fact, there's a, a narration where the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that every, da, every disease originates from the stomach. Every disease originates from the stomach. So the Prophet said, That the child of Adam has not filled a vessel that is more evil, more detrimental, more harmful than his own stomach. He said, It is sufficient, it is sufficient for the child of Adam to eat a few morsels of food so that his back can be upright, so he can stand up straight. Meaning to eat what is sufficient. Eat what suffices, not stuff yourself. They call the stomach the second brain, absolutely. And so the Sahaba, it would be hard for us to process that they didn't live by this code. It would be hard for us to think that when you look at some Muslims today, you see their stomachs out to here, the men look like they're pregnant. Men look like they're pregnant. We, we, you have scholars, scholars who are great scholars. I'm not taking anything away from their scholarship. But when you sit in front of a group of people and you're kind of giving them knowledge of Islam and your stomach is sitting out to here, it, I mean, you know what I mean? It, it's kind of, you know, there's something wrong with that picture. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like a, a nurse who comes to you and is catering to you and trying to care for you, but you're looking at her eyes, her eye, the whites of her eyes are yellow, you know, the, the tips of her fingers smell like cigarettes, and just like, you are unhealthy. <laughs> you are unhealthy. You are trying to, you know, help other people, but you're the one that's sick. You are the one that's sick. That's like a person who's a, a, a dentist and they're coming to work on your teeth, but then their teeth is all messed up. Right, exactly. A dentist with bad teeth. It's like oxymoronic. Like you're a scholar and you're giving people religious knowledge, yet you're sitting in a chair and your stomach is all the way out here. And you're trying to tell people about God and God's rights and, you know, how to be a better Muslim and how to be a better servant. You know, and I know many scholars, many, <laughs> many, and we can make every excuse in the world for them. But, you know, that was something that was disliked by the Prophet 
And so the Sahaba, they lived by this code. They lived by this code of frugality and you know moderation, even as it relates to food, right? So Aisha said that you know the women during that time, you know they didn't, you know they were khifaf, they were thin. So when they lifted up the hodage, you know when they lifted up the hodage. You know what I mean? Like they didn't they didn't know that she wasn't in it because they couldn't tell the difference. You know, they couldn't tell the difference. So uh, in another narration, Aisha she gave us an example of what the eating habit and the diet of the household of the Prophet, the diet that they lived by in the Prophet's home. Aisha said, Kana Yamurubina. That one crescent after another would, would pass us by, meaning month after month would go by. And the stove in any of the houses of the Prophet would not be lit. And our food used to be the two blacks. Water and dates. This would be equivalent to, you know, a smoothie diet. People who are just drinking a smoothie for breakfast, a smoothie for lunch, a smoothie for dinner. I actually know an imam who goes on a water diet. All he does is drinks water for a few days. I actually know an imam who does this. I was I was kind of amazed because he said, I'm following the sunnah of the Prophet the Prophet ﷺ, there were days that would go by, months at that time, where he would only eat dates and drink water. That's it. And that's that's a form of detox. That's a modern form of detoxification. Detoxing your colon. <laughs> right. They eat to live, not live to eat. Very good. Right. That's where that, that old school, you know, Islam comes into play. <laughs> MashaAllah. Right. They eat to live. Food is, you know, sustenance. It's not it's not viewed as a luxury that I'm just going to eat because I don't have anything else to, to eat. I don't have anything else to do. I'm bored, so I'm going to go eat. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm hungry, so I'm going to go eat. Every time you're hungry, you don't need to eat. Sometimes when you get hungry, you can eat an apple. Try it. Wallahi, I guarantee you it works. Sometimes you can be hungry and you think that you want something, go eat an apple. Guarantee you, you won't be hungry anymore. Food is definitely overrated. Food is definitely overrated. I literally, myself, literally only eat because I know I have to. Because I know I have to. But Aisha said that month after month, that month after month would pass us by. And no household from the houses, she's talking about her co-wives, none of the houses of the Prophet would burn a stove. A stove would not be burnt. A stove would not be lit in the houses of the Prophet sometimes for months on end. And what we would survive off of would be water and dates. So if Aisha is telling us that her, along with her other co-wives, the other wives of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, they would only survive off of water and dates. 
that kind of lends to, you know, that kind of lends to, you know, that narrative that she's, she was, not to mention she was a young girl at that time. She was a very young girl. But I'm just kind of giving you an idea to kind of get you to understand why they were like that. All right. Not to mention that they would fast a lot. All right. So not only did they eat like dates and water sometimes for months on end, you know, this is a form, modern form of detoxing, but they also used to fast a lot, which inshallah ta'ala, I believe that the uh, first uh, the first day from the first 10 days of the Hijjah, uh, I believe will start e- either Wednesday or Thursday, or Thursday or Friday, excuse me. Um, and so inshallah, we know at the beginning of the month of Dhu Hijjah, we should fast for the first nine days, especially the ninth day of Dhu Hijjah, which is the uh, day of Arafah. All right? The, the day of Arafah. And this is the whole reason why we started this discussion, is because we're honoring the month of Dhu Hijjah, that although Hajj is canceled, you know, for the vast majority, um, we can still honor the month of Dhu Hijjah and still follow the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ by fasting the first nine days of Dhu Hijjah. And if you can't fast the first nine days, fast as many days as you possibly can. Um, and, and more importantly, the ninth day of Dhu Hijjah, which is the day of uh, Arafah. And the Prophet ﷺ said that Allah frees more people from the hellfire on the day of Arafah than on, than on any other day during the year. All right? But in a, uh, more than any other day during the year. But um, Ibn Abbas, here's something that I want you to think about. Because Aisha gave us a glimpse at, you know, how their diet was. That they would survive sometimes on months, for months, right? Yes, this week. This week. I believe the first day of the Hijjah is either the, uh, the 23rd or 24th. Depending on the sighting of the moon. All right, and so that means that the Eid, uh, Eid al-Adha, will probably be next Saturday or next Sunday. Next Saturday or next Sunday will be probably Eid al-Adha. Is it obligatory for females to fast other than Ramadan? It's not obligatory for anybody to fast other than Ramadan. I'm I'm not sure if I understood your question. Is it obligatory for females to fast other than Ramadan? Meaning if you still have days from Ramadan that you did not make up, you can still fast. You can still fast the, the first 10 days of the Hijjah. Not a problem. And if you want to make the days that you are fasting from the days that you missed in Ramadan, you can do that. It's all based upon your intention. It's all based upon your intention. So when the first day of the Hijjah comes in and you want to say, okay, so for the next nine days, I'm going to make these days from my days in Ramadan, not a problem. Fasting while breastfeeding, yes, absolutely. We discussed all of this during Ramadan. Please do not pull me into a class on fasting. <laughs> Please do not pull me into a class on fasting. I already discussed all of this during Ramadan. Please. All right. Um, Ibn Abbas here's something I want you guys to think about as we talked about the, the Sahabiyat we're talking about the women now we're not necessarily talking about the men we're talking about the women 
All right. And so while many of you sisters, you put so much emphasis on the niqab and wearing jilbab and, you know, doing all of these other great things. There's also acts of ibadah that, you know, many women are negligent of as well. And that is fasting, fasting, fasting. And so I want first Aisha said that her co-wives, along with her, sometimes months would go by and there would be no stove lit in their home. All right. <laughs> there would be no stove lit in their home, meaning they would survive off of water and dates. Number two, listen to what Ibn Abbas said. Ibn Abbas, uh, on the authority of Umar, this is what is called a hadith, a narration of a sahabi on a sahabi. Sahabi is narrating something that another sahabi told him. All right? So Ibn Abbas narrated on the authority of Umar ibn al-Khattab. All right? So this is the sahabi narrating the hadith on another sahabi. <laughs> right? So... Ibn Abbas says that Umar who said that the Prophet divorced Hafsa and then he took her back. Hafsa is the only wife from amongst his wives that he divorced. The Prophet Ibn Abbas said that Umar said that the Prophet divorced Hafsa and then he remarried her. In another narration, uh, Aish, uh, in another narration, Umar said uh, that the Prophet said, "Qala li Jibril, raji' hafsa fa inha sawama qawama wa inha zawjatuka fil jannah." And the reason why he divorced her was the story of uh, Madia when uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala captured that in Surah Tahrim. Surah Tahrim in the Quran, which Tahrim itself means to make something haram. And that is when the Prophet ﷺ was coming out of the house with Madia, but it was Hafsa's house. And Hafsa saw the Prophet ﷺ coming out of her house with Madia. And, the Pro and Hafsa confronted the Prophet ﷺ and she said, Oh Messenger of Allah, you would sleep with your maidservant, you would sleep with your concubine in my house, on my day, in my house, in my bed? Like you wouldn't have done that to Aisha, why would you do that to me? And the Prophet ﷺ realizing how you know, he made her feel, how he offended her, he sought to appease her. And he said to her, how would you like if I make Madia haram for me and I will never touch her again? And Hafsa agreed to that. And the Prophet ﷺ said, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. And then what does uh, Hafsa do? Hafsa ran and she told Aisha. And it was because of that he divorced her. All right. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the first ayat of Surah Al-Tahreem, Ya ayyuhan nabiyu lima tuharrimu ma ahallallahu lak tabtaghi maradata azwajik. O Prophet, why did you make haram what Allah made halal, seeking to please your wife? And what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa in this moment is that you shouldn't have appeased her by making haram for you what Allah made halal. You should have just sat in that discomfort. <laughs> You should have just sat in that discomfort. Like you did something that made your wife upset. Sometimes you got to just sit there in that discomfort. But sometimes, as I, I gave a whole lecture about this, sometimes trying to make something right, you create a bigger wrong. And that's what he did. He tried to make it right by telling Hafsa, I will make Madia haram for me and I won't touch her anymore. And 
In doing so, he made haram what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made halal. And Allah admonished him for that. Oh Prophet, why are you making haram what Allah made halal trying to please your wife? You understand? He could have just sat in that discomfort. You know, sit in that discomfort. And the Prophet ﷺ told Hafsa, do not say anything to anyone. And Hafsa, what does she do? Lo and behold, she goes and tells Aisha. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala admonishes both of them in that surah. Right? So, the Prophet ﷺ ended up divorcing Hafsa, but he took her back. In another narration, the Prophet ﷺ explains why. Why he took her back. Does anyone know why he took Hafsa back? The Prophet ﷺ said, قَالَ لِي جِبْرِيلُ رَاجِعْ حَفْصَ فَإِنَّهَا صَوَّامَ قَوَّامَ وَإِنَّهَا زَوْجَتُكَ فِي الْجَنَّةِ The Prophet ﷺ said, Allah sent Angel Jibreel to me. <laughs> SubhanAllah. This was Hafsa's moment. <laughs> this was Hafsa's moment. The Prophet ﷺ said that Allah sent Angel Jibreel to me. And Angel Jibreel commanded me, take Hafsa back. <laughs> take Hafsa back. Why? Why should I take her back? Because she fasts all day and she prays all night. That's not a woman you divorce. I don't care what her mistake was. Overlook that mistake. <laughs> you understand? Overlook that mistake. Find it within yourself to overlook that mistake. But that's not the type of woman you divorce. Take her back. You understand? Take her back. There's some women that you just don't divorce. You learn how to sit in the discomfort of the mistake that she made. But she does not deserve divorce. Take her back. Find it within yourself to forgive her. I don't care what you do. It's a commandment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Take her back. You understand? Because she fasts all day and she prays all night. That's not the type of woman you divorce. He said, and she's going to be your wife in paradise. You understand? So the point that I'm making is that the reason why he took Hafsa back was because she fasted a lot. And the fast here... And the praying here is not the fasting of Ramadan or the five daily prayers. <laughs> you understand? This fast that, I, that Hafsa is doing here is fasting on a regular basis. <laughs> fasting on a regular basis. This is beyond Ramadan. So I'm asking you sisters, where are you guys? <laughs> where are you guys? And I mean, no need to, you know... Make a self-righteous display. If you do that, you know what I mean? If you do that, then alhamdulillah, consider yourself blessed. But for the women who don't fast on a regular basis, you don't get up at night and pray, like, what's your virtue? <laughs> what is your virtue? What are you going to stand on, your Qiyamah? Allah commanded Jibreel to command the Prophet ﷺ to take Hafsa back. And the virtue was that she fasts and she prays. Beyond what is obligatory. So my question to you guys is, what is your virtue? What do you stand on? What would Allah, if your husband divorced you right now, what would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala command Jibreel to command your husband to take you back for? 
question. That's a question. That's a that's for you to answer yourself. What is your virtue with Allah? What is your virtue with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? What have you done that is so great? What are you doing right now in your life as a Muslimah that is so great that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would defend you in that moment? What are you doing? Subhanallah. Allah sent Angel Jibreel sent Angel Jibreel to command the Prophet sallallahu to take her back. And her virtue was that she fasts every other day. And she gets up at night and she prays. Every night. Sawama Kawama. What do you do? Just something to think about. So the women, as Aisha mentioned, were khifafen. They were thin. They were not heavy. Lesson number 12. Lesson 12. Don't hold people hostage who have nothing to do with your journey. Don't hold people hostage who have nothing to do with your journey. Where did I get this from? Don't hold people hostage to your pain because you need somebody to take the journey with you. Your pain is your situation. Your situation is your journey. By Aisha explaining that women were thin, that women were, you know, very light and very thin, by her including this in the story, what is she doing? What is Aisha doing? She included this in there. She said the women were thin during that time. They were not heavy. They only used to eat food a little bit. And this is the reason why they didn't know that I wasn't in the Houdinch. Because they couldn't tell the difference. So my question is, why did Aisha mention that? Why did she include that in the story? Let me see who can catch it. What is she doing by including that in the story? She's trying not to blame the men in the army who did not notice she was there. Exactly, Mason. Exactly. She's exonerating them. She's excusing them, right? I'm not holding you guys accountable. She's making an excuse for them. You understand? She was making an excuse for them, thus excusing them from the ordeal so they would not be accountable. They would not be to blame for anything that happened to her. So don't hold people hostage who have nothing to do with your journey. Can you imagine how the men must have felt when everything, when the fit hit the shan with Aisha and everybody spreading this information, this slander of Aisha that she slept with this guy and she did this. Can you imagine what was going through the minds of the guys who, you know, thought she was in the hodage and drove off without her? They're probably thinking, man, if we would have just checked, you know. If we would have just checked the holdage, maybe she wouldn't have ended up in this situation. She did not blame them. She actually excused them from the situation. She's basically saying, 
I don't hold you guys accountable. I don't hold you guys accountable. There was no way you could have known that I wasn't in there. I, I was thin. The hold that just kind of heavy, so you would have never been able to tell whether I was in there. She's excusing them. You understand? She's excusing them from the ordeal. She exonerated them. Not just in her eyes, but also in the eyes of others who may have held them accountable for that. Y'all stupid. How could y'all pull off and not know that Aisha wasn't in there? How could you guys not know that she wasn't in there? This is the wife of the Prophet Wasallam. This is the wife of the Messenger of Allah. You understand? Other people could have held them accountable. But by Aisha including that in the narration, she excused them all the way. She excused them all the way. All right? So they may have felt partly responsible. When the fit hit the shan, when everything started spreading, she might they might have felt part responsible. Just like, man, if we would have just checked, if we only would have checked, Aisha would have never ended up in this situation. But Aisha's excusing them ahead of time. They may have felt partly responsible. So Aisha realizing that it wasn't their fault. She made an excuse for them as she retold the story. As painful as retelling this story was, she also did not indict them. As you can, as I said in the beginning, Aisha wasn't emotional with this when she finally narrated this. When Aisha narrated this story, this was an emotional narrative. Evidenced by the fact that she was able to process everything that happened. And as she's retelling it, she's including information in the narration that excuses people who had nothing to do with it. That were completely innocent. That shows you that it wasn't an emotional narrative. Right. Very composed. Very mature. And she's excusing people. She's not holding people accountable for her pain. Sometimes we imprison people, we hold people hostage because we are in pain and they have absolutely nothing to do with the situation. You ever get into an argument with someone and because another person is standing alongside that someone, you indict them too or you included it too? It's like, but I I didn't have anything to do with that. (laughs) That's you and this person arguing. I just, I'm with this person, but I don't have anything to do with your argument. Like, why are you holding me accountable? Because we want to take as many people hostage in the situation that we can. Why? Because the more people we hold hostage to our pain, the less we have to hold ourselves accountable for what happened. You understand? The less we have to look at ourselves and hold ourselves accountable. Aisha is taking full responsibility for this situation she didn't accuse anybody up to this point she didn't accuse the necklace she didn't curse the necklace and accuse the necklace for getting her into the situation to begin with she didn't accuse the the men who were carrying the the holdage and putting it on the the responsible for putting it on the camel she didn't hold them accountable she was very very particular about who was responsible as we get to the next sentence, Aisha, she continues, she said, She said, I was a young girl. I was a young girl. 
And the reason why Aisha's saying that she was a young girl, we, 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 we said before that she was 14, approaching 15 when this incident happened. And the reason why Aisha is mentioning that she was a young girl when this situation happened is she's making excuses for herself now. <laughs> she's excusing herself now because she's saying, you know, what I did by getting out of the whole ditch and going off by myself into the desert when it was dark, I did what a young girl would normally do. I did what a young girl would normally do. I was a young girl. I didn't know any better. I didn't. That's the reason she's basically saying that's the reason why I didn't tell anybody that I was going to use the bathroom. That's the reason why I didn't hurry up back and then go look for the necklace later on. You know, that's the reason why I didn't take anybody with me. <laughs> you understand? That's the reason. Because somebody could say, well, if Aisha was 14 years old, why did she leave by herself? Why didn't she take somebody with her? If Aisha was 14 years old when this happened, why didn't she tell her husband that she was leaving to go use the bathroom? Why didn't she tell her parents? Why didn't she tell Abu Bakr? Abu Bakr was on the journey. Why didn't she tell her father? Why didn't she say something to somebody? Aisha's telling you why. She said, Kuntu jariyatin haditha to sin. I was a young girl. Wasn't thinking. I was a young girl. I wasn't really thinking. All right? And she learned from this situation because the, the other situation of her losing the necklace the second time, what happened when she lost the necklace the second time? I just gave you guys a story before. She owned her journey. Yes, she did. She owned it. What did she do? I gave you that this wasn't the first time it happened. It happened again on the same journey. She lost the necklace again on this journey. But what did she do differently the second time? What did she do different the second time? Question. I already I gave you guys the narration last class. What did she do different the second time? She told the Prophet Sallallahu she lost the, the necklace. And what did the Prophet do? What did the Prophet do when Aisha told him that she lost the necklace? The Prophet Sallallahu sent some of his soldiers to go look for it. You understand? The Haditha Tayyamum, right? That all happened on this journey. <laughs> so the Prophet, right, the Prophet stopped the caravan. He sent a group from his companions to go look for it. So she learned, which is lesson number 13, and that is experience is the best teacher. Because Aisha would have never known prior to this. And this is what we tell our children. Sometimes they're young, they're very naive, they don't understand the world. They don't understand when we say text when you get here. Or being mindful when you're driving, you know, at night, you know, don't do this or don't do that. Take the short way, don't go this way, don't do this. And for our children, it seems like we're being overbearing. It seems like we're being, you know, over the top. But we have experience that they don't have. You understand? We have experience that they don't have. And this is why, as a young girl, Aisha did what she did. An older woman would have never walked out into the desert by herself without telling somebody. 
She would have at least said something to somebody or took a companion along with her to go with her, as Aisha did later on in the story, as we will see when she got back to Medina and she went out to the desert to go relieve herself. She took Umistah with her, and Umistah was the one who actually let her in on what was being said about her. You understand? But this is the naivete of our children. But experience is the best teacher because we can tell our children until we're blue in the face. But once they have, you know, that experience, they know next time not to do that. It's just like, I don't have to say anything at this point because now, you know, you've had that experience yourself. And as the Prophet ﷺ said, the believer, لا يلدهو, لا يلدهو That the believer does not get stung in the same hole twice. The believer does not get stung in the same hole twice. Meaning, the pain from the sting is the lesson. You learned your lesson. So you're not going to stick your hand in there again, right? So... Aisha, she said, Fakuntu Jadiatin Haditha to sin. I was a young girl, young in age, 14 years old. So she's explaining to you why she made the move that she made. Why she ran off to use the bathroom, you know, without telling somebody, without taking somebody with her. Why, when she realized the necklace was broken, didn't she run back first to the army to where the group was? And informed them before she ran back on her own to go look for it. She's giving us a, an understanding of why. All right. So Aisha continues. She said, "Fabathu al-Jamal wasaru, fawajatu ikdi ba'da mustamar al-Jaish." She said, "The army began to take off. They took off. They left. They left. They saddled up." They put the holdage on top of the camel and they head they headed off. Alright? She said, For to She said, and I finally found my necklace after the army had gone. I finally found the necklace after the army had left. I finally found the necklace. After the army had left. And so therefore she fulfilled her trust by finding the necklace. So the situation wasn't in vain. <laughs> and it proves her trustworthiness. So lesson number 14 here. And that is that sometimes proving you are trustworthy requires some level of sacrifice on your part. <laughs> no risk, no reward. <laughs> Aisha found the necklace, but at the expense of what? Of everything that's about to happen to her afterwards. And you ask yourself, sometimes we do things, we go to, you know, such extremes, you know, to, you know, somebody might say, oh, I don't believe you or you're not right. And then you might go and, you know, try to prove that yourself, you know, prove that you're right. But then you do so sometimes at the expense of your own honor. You're trying to just prove to the person that you're not a liar, that you're not lying, that you didn't make this up. And in doing so, sometimes you put yourself at risk. But that's people who are honest and trustworthy. They don't mind putting themselves in risky situations because their desire to be truthful and to be honest will drive them to where, you know, whatever extents they have to go to. 
So the lesson here, lesson number 14, she said, I finally found the necklace. But that was after the, the army had left. You know? And so sometimes proving that you are trustworthy requires some level, requires you to sacrifice something that is important. And that's exactly what this situation represents. All of this was over a lost necklace that she went back to look for. And although she found, finally found the necklace at the expense of her honor, because look what happens to her afterwards. But for people who are honest and truthful, brutally honest, brutally truthful, they don't care. They don't care if they put themselves in risky situations because they are going to honor and truthfulness is more important to them. No risk, no reward. And they understand that. People who are honest, people who are brutally honest and truthful people, they understand that concept. No risk, no reward. What, what do you think speaking truth to power is all about? <laughs> this is a person who is trying to, t- who is trying to you know, present their truth. And sometimes at the expense of losing their life. How far did she go to relieve herself that the caravan was out of sight from her? Must have been a distance, a ways. Must have been a ways. Sometimes, you know, we're talking about a 14-year-old girl. She's probably not thinking about the distance. This is nighttime. It's, it's, keep in mind, it's night. So the only thing she has is, you know, a little candle, a, a, a little, you know, stick with a fire with fire on it. So she's probably just walking. You know, she's not thinking, you know, if you're out in the desert, you know, and of course there's sometimes trees or whatever the case may be. Sometimes is, you know, a wooded area or something like that. You know, as a young person, you're just walking. You're not thinking that I've gone that far. You ever been out in the woods camping and then you step away from where the camp is and you're walking and you're thinking that you're you haven't gone that far. But then when you turn around, you've lost your way. You don't even know how in the world you got that far out there. It happens. It happens. Right? She was proving her own trustworthiness while simultaneously risking her own honor. Absolutely. So that means that when she finally gives the necklace back to her sister, it's like, girl, you don't know what I went through. My honor was in, you know, was questioned. All of this over this daggone necklace. Take this necklace back. <laughs> you understand? Like this necklace has cost me so much. Take it. <laughs> you understand? Right. So sometimes, you know, proving, you know, your honesty and your trustworthiness, it requires some sacrificing something that is important. You know, so Aisha, she continues. She said, so for wajadtu ikdi, she said, I finally found my necklace, but this was after the army had continued. She said, fajitu manazilahum, walaysa biha da'in wala mujib. So Aisha said, so I finally arrived back to where the encampment was. I finally reached the place where they were, but they were gone. There was no one there. There was no one to call and no one to answer. No one to call and no 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 one calling and no one answering. Meaning there was nobody there. 
She said, so I decided to stay in the place where I was. I was, I decided to stay exactly where I was. She said, well, Vanentu, pay attention. She said, well, Vanentu, ennahum sayafkidunani. She said, I thought, I thought that once they realized that I was gone, I was not there, they would come back for me. So I stayed where I was. I stayed where I was. Because I figured, or I thought, that once they realized that I was not inside the holdage, they would come back for me. So I decided to stay exactly where I was. Lesson number 15. The Muslim woman should always be guarded and protected. Always. The husnul the good thoughts that Aisha had about the men in her community that she knew full certainty, she decided to stay exactly where she was because she knew that the men in her community, that if they knew that she was missing, they would come back for her. That's husnul That's the good thoughts that she had about the men in her community. The Muslim woman should always be protected, guarded and protected in the Muslim community. Aisha was in the middle of the desert knowing with full certainty that the moment the men carrying her tent, the men walking her camel, the moment they knew that she was missing, they would come back for her. And so therefore she stayed where she was. That shows you that she had personal gun. She had good thoughts about the men in her community. The overprotectiveness of the men in her community. Right. Thinking of, think about, when you think about this, you think about this 14-year-old girl who decided I'm going to stay right here because I know the moment they realize I'm not there, they're going to come back for me. You understand? She had no doubt about that, which is why she decided to stay there. You think about that, and then you think about how many children, and more specifically, how many girls go missing in our society. No father to come search for them. You think about in our society, how many people go missing? How many young girls you see on Facebook? Oh, this girl is missing. It's like, where the freak is this girl's father at? Where's this girl's father at? The father somewhere else. Hasn't seen his daughter in years. Meanwhile, your daughter is missing somewhere. And you laid up with some woman. You somewhere missing somewhere. <laughs> missing in action. Your daughter is missing and you missing in action as a father. No man to come look for her. <laughs> so you think about how many girls, you know, go missing in our society. And there's no one to come look for them. No one to come search for them. No family, no father, no brothers, no nobody coming to look for them. You understand? Think about how many Muslim girls go missing. <laughs> Not necessarily physically, spiritually. Gone. <laughs> how many Muslim girls go missing? <laughs> Hijab come off, abaya come off. And you never see them in the Muslim community again. Where the hell are they? They're missing. Muslim girls, missing. Nobody to go look for them. 
No father to go look for him. No, no mother coming to look for him. Nobody going to look for him. Spiritually lost out there in the world. Muslims lost out in the world spiritually. Nobody coming to look for him. Nobody to make dua for them. Nobody comes to rescue them except some brother who wants to marry her in polygyny, make him his second, third, fourth wife, fifth wife. You understand? She's somebody's side chick. Missing. Spiritually. In the Muslim community. Emotionally. Missing. Right. In the club with someone's non-Muslim son. Right. Buried under a pile of makeup. You can't even find her anymore. Where is she? Buried under a pile of makeup. Long eyelashes connected to her eyelashes. Her eyebrows gone pile of makeup on her face buried missing can't find her and man subhanallah man no muslim leadership coming to look for you no no imam searching for you no rescue squad coming to get you you tuck somewhere being domestically abused by some man who can't see or recognize your value and ain't nobody coming to look for you. Nobody coming to check for you. So many emails I receive. I'm like, where's your father? Muslim woman should never have to say, oh, Imam, can you grant me a khulah? Where the hell is your father? Where's your brothers? Where? Where are the men in your family? Instagram, you're going to cut off. I'm going to turn you back on. It's just, it's really sad, man, when you think about it. So, you know, when Aisha said that, you know, I stayed where I was because, you know, I knew that once they realized that I was gone, they would come back for me. The Muslim woman in the early Muslim community was always guarded and protected. Was always guarded and protected. Aisha had no doubt that the moment they realized that she was gone, they were going to come back and look for her. And, you know, for those of us, you know, who kind of feel lost today, if you, you know, you feel lost, understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-hadi. Allah is the one that guides. Seek guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you lost your way, seek guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, And we found you astray and we guided you. We found you astray. No guidance and we gave you guidance. We found you astray and we guided you. In the hadith of Qudsi, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ibadi, kullukum dalun illa min hadayt, fastahduni ahdikum. Oh my servants, all of you are astray, except those whom I've guided. Seek guidance from me and I will guide you. If you feel like you are guided, what about the boys? Of course the boys, but let's stick to when I speak about a particular subject, I'm talking about that in particular. That does not dismiss other elements. 
But I am the, you know, I have tunnel vision. So when I'm talking about one thing, I'm focusing only on that thing in that moment. Sometimes you guys have, you know, bipolar. You all over the place. Well, what about this? Or what about that? Or what about this? You can't. Let's let's focus on one thing at a time. Don't start asking what about this or what about that or what about this one or what about that one. We would never conceptualize what I'm talking about. <laughs> Stick to one thing at a time. Obviously, that doesn't exclude the boys that go missing. But right now, we are focusing on the sisters. This whole entire hadith is about a woman, an ordeal that she had. And although we can make connections to the boys and how that would connect to them, you know, no, nah, we're going to stick to one thing. One thing. So, as a Muslim woman, she should never feel lost. She should always feel like Aisha. At the moment, you know, my community sees me missing, they will come look for me. The moment my community sees me missing, they're going to come look for me. And unfortunately, this is something that we've lost with our children. Our girls in today's time, they don't feel that sense of overprotectiveness in the Muslim community. They don't feel that sense of overprotectiveness even from their own parents. Some own parents, some 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 sisters, their own parents have washed their hands of them. And and if and and of course I understand some children they test you. They test you, they test every inch, every fiber of your being. Some people, some of your children, they test you. However, at very least, you can always pray for guidance for your children. Always. Even if you're not there to hold their hand and guide them through what they're going through. Always get up in the middle of the night and pray for your children. The Prophet ﷺ said there are three people who their dua will always be answered. And there's no doubt about that. And one of those three people is the parent for the child. Make dua for your children. You may not be able to hold their hand because of the mess that they are wrapped up in. So you may not be there to hold their hand. But you can always make a sacrifice by getting up in the middle of the night. Sacrificing your sleep. Sacrificing your comfort. Getting up out of your bed. Making dua. Making wudu. Pray to raka'ah. And raise your hand and beg Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To protect your children. To guide your children. To keep them aright. I may not be able to hold your hand because of the stuff that you wrapped up in, but I can always sacrifice on my end and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You can give sadaqah and say, oh Allah, if I gave this sadaqah for your sake, seeking your pleasure, guide my son because he needs it. Guide him. You can give sadaqah and then turn around and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by way of that sadaqah, by way of that good deed that you did to do something for your children. That's called tawassul. Husnul Dhan in in our you know Husnul Dhan in in our tradition has is three types. Husnul Dhan, which is having good thoughts, is three types. The first is Husnul Dhan with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. The first one that we have good thoughts about is Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. We never lose sight. We never allow shaitan to make our lives, to, to lead us down a path that is so dark that we don't even think good about God anymore. But always think good about God. Because what Allah will do for you is contingent on your thoughts about him. Did you know that? 
what Allah will do for you is contingent upon the thoughts that you harbor about him, that you hold about him. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned in the hadith of Qudsi, that I am as my servant thinks of me. You understand? I am as my servant thinks of me. What you think about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will determine how much Allah will aid you and assist you. Even one of the scholars of the past, he said, Wallahi, لو أدخلني الله النار لأخبرت أهل النار أني أحبه. He said, Wallahi, I swear by Allah, I swear to God, that if Allah was to put me in the hellfire, I would tell everybody in the hellfire I love him. You understand? <laughs> I would tell everybody in the hellfire that I love him. Meaning, no matter what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests me with, it never changes my thoughts about him. It doesn't interfere with the good thoughts that I have about him. The first one that you have husnul dhan with is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Have husnul dhan, good thoughts about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because what Allah will do for you is contingent on the thoughts that you hold about him. Number two is... Husnul dhan. And of course, you can see the husnul dhan that the Prophet ﷺ had for Allah. For example, the hadith when the Prophet hung his sword up and he laid down underneath the tree and the hypocrite grabbed the sword and he put the sword at the neck of the Prophet ﷺ and he says to him, who's going to protect you from me now? And the Prophet ﷺ looked up at the guy and he says, Allah, no, no, no doubt about that. Allah will protect me from you. And the man was so astonished, his hands started shaking and he, he dropped the sword. And the Prophet ﷺ picked the sword up and put it to his neck and said, who's going to protect you from me now? You understand? He never lost, no matter what your circumstances are, there is no, we say Allahu Akbar. Allah is the greatest. You understand? Allah is the greatest. You understand? Meaning, I don't see anything or anyone greater than God. So no matter what situation I am confronted with, no matter what situation I am in, there is no situation, no dilemma, no challenge, no difficulty that is greater than God. There is no sin that is greater than his forgiveness. There is no mistake that is greater than his mercy. There is no dilemma, there is no challenge or situation that is greater than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's power to remove me from it. You understand? Allahu Akbar. Let that concept become manifest in our lives. We say it multiple times in the salah. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Multiple times in the salah as a reminder the repetition of Allahu Akbar throughout our salat is a reminder to ourselves that there's nothing greater than Allah. Nothing greater than God. There's no human being greater than Allah. As uh, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, he got hold of Anas ibn Malik and said, I'm going to kill you. Because Anas used to warn against Hajjaj. He was an oppressive governor. And Anas used to warn against him. <laughs> and Hajjaj got hold of, you know, Anas. And he said, Anas, 
I'm going to kill you. And Anna said, Wallahi, if I thought that you had the power to kill me, if I thought that you had the power to do any harm to me beyond what Allah gives you permission to do, I would worship you instead of Allah. You can't do nothing to me except what Allah gives you permission to do. Allahu Akbar. You are not greater than God. Don't put yourself above God. If I thought that you had the power to do to me beyond what Allah gave you power to do, I would worship you instead of Allah. You can't do anything to me except what Allah gave you permission to do. You understand? The real power is not you. The power is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The second, husnul dhan, having good thoughts, should be husnul dhan binafs, a thika binafs, that you should have husnul dhan with your own self. Good thoughts about you. You should have good thoughts about you. Have good thoughts about you. If you don't think well about yourself, then guess what? You're not going to do well. <laughs> If you tell yourself you can't do it, then guess what's going to happen? You're not going to do it. What did the Prophet ﷺ say to Zahir ibn Haram? Zahir said, the Prophet ﷺ said jokingly, he said, Man abd, Who will buy this slave? And Zahir said, Kasidin. He said, Oh Messenger of Allah, you will find me worthless. Nobody would buy me. And the Prophet ﷺ, he said, What? He said, Bal anta and He said, no, to Allah, you are priceless. He's trying to get him to think about himself in that fashion. That although you say that you are worthless, you are only basing that upon what other people think of you. Your thoughts about yourself should not be based upon what other people think about you. Your thoughts about yourself should be what you believe about you. Not because of your achievements, not because of your accomplishments, not because of external facts, factors. Any of, any of you took my detoxing course, you know that, that how we view ourselves, self-validation is based upon what is internal, not external. You understand? Self-validation is not based upon your achievements, your accomplishments, how other people see you, how other people value you. Self-validation is based upon how you see yourself. Completely unclothed. Without all of the accomplishments, without all the achievements, without all of the PhDs and doctorates and bachelor's degrees and master's degrees, without all of that, those are all external. Without your money, your materialistic possessions, you understand? No, it's based upon the qualities that make you who you are. And that's what the Prophet ﷺ was trying to get Zahir to see. He said, no, بَلْ أَنْتَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ غَالًا He said, no, to Allah, you, to Allah, you are priceless. Why can't you see that? To Allah, you are priceless. Why can't you see that? So you have to learn to have husnul run with yourself. You have to have good thoughts about yourself. If you don't believe that you can do it, guess what? You ain't going to never do it. If you don't believe that you can do it, then you're never going to be able to do it. And the third is that we have husnul dhan with other people. 
Husnulvan, which is one of the lessons that we learned from some of the ayahs that were revealed about this story, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in surah number 24, ayah 12, talking to the Muslim community who got involved in the slander of Aisha, Allah admonished the entire Muslim community. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Lola if Samiratumuhu, one mu'minuna wal mu'minatu bi amfusihim khaira, wa kalu hada if kumubin. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that when you heard about the slander of Aisha, when you heard what was being said, why didn't you think well of the believing men and believing women? Why didn't you think well of the believers and say that this is an evident lie? Why didn't you think well of your brothers and sisters in Islam? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is admonishing the entire community because it was a lesson for everybody. Although a few of the believers got caught up in this slander, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed these ayats admonishing the entire Muslim community. Because it was a lesson that they all needed to hear. Allah says, why when you heard the slander, did you not think well of the believing men and believing women in the community and say that this is an evident lie? Having good thoughts about others. Until something is solid, even when something seems like it's solid, even when something seems like it's solid, you have to always leave a little room that until I hear the person's why, I'm going to reserve my judgment. You understand? Doesn't mean that you are naive. It just means that I reserve my judgment because although it seems like a wild situation. I know that everybody has a why for what they did. There's an old Arab proverb, old Arab narrative, right? Where a guy comes to a guy comes to a judge with one of his eyes poked out. And he tells the judge, you know, prosecute this individual because he poked out one of my eyes. He gorged out one of my eyes and he tells the judge, prosecute him. He put out one of my eyes. But then when the judge calls the other guy to the table and asks him, why did you gorge out one of his eyes? The guy said, because he put out both of my eyes. <laughs> so here's a guy who's one-eyed, who can't see, who's asking the judge to hold him accountable because he poked his eye out. But meanwhile, you poked both of his eyes out. You understand? So... What, what, what that proverb is meant to do is to be cautious before you judge. Understand the why. There's always a why. There's always a why behind the situation. No matter how, no matter how crazy the situation seems, there's always a why behind it. And until you, you know, have taken time out to actually hear the person's why on his side, then you might want to reserve your judgment before you do so. Last part of the story that I'm going to cover for today. Aisha said, فَبَيْنَ أَنَا جَالِسٌ فِي مَنْزِلِي غَرَبَتْنِي عَيْنَيَّ فَنِمْتُ Aisha said, um, so while I was sitting there, right, she's there at the encampment where the army was, but they pulled off, Right? 
not the whole Sora. The whole Sora to Nor is not about the slander. Just a certain chunk of the Ayats is about it. All right? The beginning part. Uh, but the whole Sora is not about the, the slander of Aisha. Aisha says, so while I'm sitting there in that, you know, in that space, I'm at the encampment where they were, they pulled off, she said, but I decided to stay there because I knew that once they realized that I was missing, that they would come back for me. She says, so while I'm sitting there in that situation, sitting there, that my eyes started to get heavy. My eyes started to get heavy. And I went to sleep right there in that spot. And another narration, she said, I took my hijab and I covered my face and I went to sleep. Why did she say she covered her face to lay down and go to sleep? Why did Aisha cover her face? She said, while I'm sitting there, my eyes started to get heavy and... I covered my face with my hijab and I lay down and I went to sleep there. Why did she cover her face? The sand? Possibly, yes. And why did she cover her face? Why did why did she cover her face? Because she, no, because she figured that if someone, she was crying and in the desert, no, because she figured that if someone was going to come up and find her, at least her face is covered and she can still guard her modesty, right? Yes, very good. Very good. Very good. And this was as... This is lesson number 16. This brings us to lesson number 16. All right? Because Al-Hafid ibn Hajr, Hafid ibn Hajr, he said that the reason why she fell asleep was either one, the result of worry and anxiety. Mind you, she's, you know, searching for her necklace. She lost it. And then, you know, she gets back to the encampment. No one is there. They left. She's crying, frantic, so there's worry, anxiety. And you know, when those emotions kind of get very heightened within the individual, sometimes it takes a lot of energy out of us, and we just crash. And so Hafid ibn Hajrat, he said that her falling asleep right there in that situation was the result of worry and anxiety, or, or, Hafid ibn Hajr said that she either fell asleep in that position because of worry and stress and anxiety, over, overwhelmed with these emotions, or God was having mercy, God was showing mercy to her. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala throws thrust upon her sleep as a mercy for her so that she can relax during this time of being alienated and separated from you know her tribe separated from her husband uh, in the in the middle of the desert at nighttime you know this is the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala don't you know that the human body can only withstand a certain degree of force 
physical force as well as emotional. We have we were created as human beings with limitations. God put limitations on us because simply we're not God. We're we're human beings. So we have limitations. Many <laughs> plethora of limitations. From amongst the limitations that God has put upon us is our threshold for pain, whether physical or emotional. You ever seen a person get hit in the head hard with something? They immediately pass out. Falling on unconscious is a form of mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because the, 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 the force was beyond what we can what we have the about what we have the ability to endure, right? As Allah says in the Quran that He does not put on His servants more than what they can bear. We oftentimes look at that in terms of tests. We look at that in terms of tests, whether being tested with money, tested with children, tested with different things that God would not put on me more than what I can handle. But we don't broaden our understanding of that text beyond, you know, our limited scope. You understand? That also applies emotionally as well as physically. <laughs> that also applies emotionally and physically. So, I mean, I know a guy that I know some some time ago, from many years ago. He was shot in the head, right? He was shot in the head. And so one day we were sitting down having a conversation and, and someone asked him, you know, what did it feel like? You got shot in the back of the head. Like, did you feel it? He said, I didn't feel anything. He said, it just felt like somebody hit me in the head with a brick. He said, and I just passed out. Passed out. That's Allah's way. That's God's way of being merciful to you by not allowing you to endure that level of pain because it's beyond what you can handle and the same thing emotionally you ever get to a point where like you're crying or whatever the case you remember when you're small and you got a you got a beating your mom whoop your butt right and you go in the room and you just cry and you cry yourself to sleep that's some of the best sleep that we have probably ever had in our lives i can say for me because <laughs> i i was i was a frequent you know, getting my behind whooped. But some of the best sleep I have ever had in my life was after I got a whooping. Literally, you go in your room, you curl up on your, your bed or on your floor, and you cry and you just go to sleep. Because that might have been both physical as well as emotional. <laughs> that might have been physical and emotional, baby. <laughs> Right, more so emotional if you was the favorite child, right? Because you just couldn't imagine your mother whooping you, right? So for you, it was probably emotional. But for for those of us who were, you know, on the the frequent list of getting your butt whooped, it was it was more physical than it was anything, <laughs> right? It's it's a calming, you know. You right, you wake up, you literally think it's the next day. Wallahi. You literally wake up thinking it's the next day, right? Because that's that's the soothing part. You understand? Aisha said my eyes became heavy and I went to sleep. I covered my face with my hijab and I went to sleep right there in that in that place. And this was the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
And this brings us to lesson number 16, which will be our lesson, last lesson for tonight. And that is Allah. God is more merciful to us than we are to ourselves. Allah, God, cushions our trials in ways in which we could never imagine. And when we are going through our different trials and, you know, our turbulent times in our lives, look for God's cushion. Look for his cushion because it's there. How do we know that his cushion is there? Because your situation could have always been worse. But the cushions sometimes are subtle. They're very subtle. And if you're constantly worrying about the, the over, overall trial that you are experiencing, you're never going to focus on the little you know, inserts of mercy that God put into or infused into your situation. You're never going to focus. You're never going to see the little inserts of mercy that is put into your situation, that he you know, infuses into your situation. Allah knows what we can handle and what we can't handle. So Allah gives us tests, but he also cushions those tests. Because just imagine if Aisha didn't go to sleep in that situation and she's sitting up and she's looking around and it's dark outside. She's in the middle of the desert. It's hot. You know, she's, she would have been suffering from anxiety, fear, worry, all of those different elements that are tools that Shaitan uses you know, to his own advantage. When do when do we start making mistakes? We start making mistakes when we are in fear, when we're anxious, when we're worried, right? We start to move in haste. We start to make decisions because those emotions block the frontal lobe of our brain, which is where all of our processing happens. All of our processing happens right here, the frontal lobe, the frontal cortex. But when you are experiencing high emotions, high intensified emotions like jealousy, like anger, like anxiety, like depression, like all of these things, they cloud our judgment. They cloud our ability to make smart decisions. You understand? And so we start to move in haste. We start to move quickly because we're just looking for a quick way out of whatever uncomfortable emotion, you know, whatever emotion is making us uncomfortable at that moment. Right? So all rationale goes out the window. So as a mercy to Aisha, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bestows upon her a covering of sleep and she falls asleep in that moment. As a protection for her. As a mercy for her. Think about how many times you wanted to go do something to someone. You went home, you went to sleep, you woke up and you had a completely different change of mind. Think about how many times as a man or a woman you wanted to leave your spouse. You got into a heated argument and you're like, man, I'm out of here tomorrow. I'm, I'm packing my stuff. And then you wake up the next day. And it's a completely different vibe. You and your spouse are having a, you know, a, a conversation now. It's not an argument. You're not yelling at one another. You understand? Because sleep, y'all had a chance to, to sleep. And that sleep was a mercy. You're arguing, fighting. You're like, man, you know, and he sleeps on the couch and she sleeps in the room. And you're like, man, I can't do this no more. This, is, this situation is over with. And then you both wake up in the morning. You're like, can we talk? Can I talk to you? 
And it's a completely different vibe because that sleep has brought about, you know, mercy. It's a, it's a mercy. Absolutely. It's a mercy. And sometimes sleep is necessary. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is more merciful to us than we are to ourselves. He cushions our trials in ways in which we could never imagine. Look for the ways in which Allah cushions our blows um, because it could have always been worse. It could always have been worse. When you sleep on something and then you get up in the morning and you're kind of thinking like, man, I could have said that differently. I could have approached that differently. You know, I, 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 could, I don't really want to leave. I don't really want this situation to be, you know, to be over with. You know, <laughs> I need to take more naps. <laughs> Right, so we'll stop here. So Aisha, she falls asleep in that situation. And as we will see, uh, this is probably like segueing into the start of her ordeal because she gets found. And then when they return back to where the army was, that's when she's spotted by the chief of the hypocrites who now begins spreading what he spreads. So inshallah, just be patient. We're getting, we're getting to, you know, we're getting to the, the juicy stuff. I know everybody is, you know, growing impatient, trying to get to the actual story. But all of these things have led up to the conversation that we're going to have later. Jazakumullahu khair, and you guys have been great. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you all. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyya Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallama tasliman kathira. Wa akhiru da'wana anil hamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi. Thank you.